0: Our stories are insistent. I use the analogy in the book of trying to hold a basketball underwater. You can do it for a while, but eventually that thing is going to come rocketing to the surface. You know, I say it all the time, um, with say it to Robert, you either own your story or it owns you. So when I wasn't telling my story, my story was in charge of my life. And so it informed who I married, it informed how I took care of myself, it informed how It informed every relationship in my life. It informed the way I parented. Um, It was an enormously powerful story because I kept it hidden away.
1: That was Laura Parrott Perry, author of the brand new book, She Wrote It Down, How a Secret Keeper Became a Storyteller. Laura is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. She's a recovering alcoholic as well as a recovering anorexic and bulimic. And in this conversation, she is so vulnerable, so raw, and so hopeful and helpful about how you can tell your story and uh, you can acknowledge the facts of what happened in your life in ways that really were damaging and hurtful, but also to untangle what happened with the story that you created in order to live with that, what became most likely a secret for you. So I need to say on the front end that she shares about her own stories of childhood sexual abuse. So proceed with caution if those kinds of stories trigger you. But otherwise, get into this podcast, it's delicious. Hi, Laura. I I mean, honestly, uh, I have been waiting Ever since I was reading your book, I've been waiting with bated breath to have this conversation. So hello, my new friend.
0: Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited, too.
1: Uh, Laura, you just released your book called She Wrote It Down, How a Secret Keeper Became a Storyteller and i i have i do have to be honest every once in a while when i have people on like they send me their stuff and i read you know maybe like enough to (laughs) have a good conversation but i really couldn't put yours down uh because it is so raw beautiful honest and it it immediately invited me into a kind of um reflection about my own life and so um thank you for that gift
0: Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Good. That's exactly what my hope was, you know, because our our stories can be different. But I think anytime someone is honest about their story, it just creates that space, creates that space for other people to do the same thing, even if their story doesn't bear any resemblance to mine.
1: I totally agree. Yes. So and as I was reading it, like I realized we we love so the Indigo Girls you quote um, about last night, <laughs>
0: That's a beautiful
1: '80s movie that I think I probably watched a dozen times.
0: Oh my, so many times
1: because I wanted to be the Rob Lowe character, you know, sort of the so tragic. Um. Yeah. And then we have a mutual friend in Matt Bayes who has been on the podcast, yeah. and so good lord,
0: I love him so much.
1: Yeah. So hello, Matt. I know you'll be listening. Uh, we I'm love it. you. And if you're new to the podcast and haven't listened to Matt's um, episode, it's called Finding God in the Ruins, which is the same title as his book. So run out and get that book and or listen to the podcast with Matt.
0: Seriously, so, run. That book changed my life.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. and <laughs> as I was texting back and forth with Matt... <laughs> Matt's like, you're gonna love Laura. She's like the female version of me. Pretty much. That's what he
0: said. Pretty pretty much. Yeah.
1: Okay, so let's let's get right into it because in the very first couple of pages, Laura, you say that you're a recovering alcoholic, you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, you're an anorexic and and bulimic, and you're like, so there I am. I'm great at parties. Um, So. I would like to ask you why um, you go there right away.
0: Well, you know, when I introduce myself that way, when I'm speaking, it's always because I know that those stories, because those were my shame stories, were the stories that I felt the most alone in. And so my goal when I'm speaking and when I'm writing is to close the gap between when I start talking and someone else stops feeling alone. And so I find that when I lead with those facts, there is immediately um, a stillness that will come over part of the room. And I know it's because and I know I know for a lot of people when when people used to talk about any of those things in front of me, I would freeze because I would feel really exposed because even though other people didn't know those things about me, I knew them about myself and I I want people to know that they're not alone Because that's the lie. We all get sold in those things is that it's just us, right? You know, we're terminally unique <laughs> right? And, and it's a lie and it's a lie that keeps a lot of us sick for a long time
1: oh, I totally agree uh, One of the quotes that I love that you write is you say we build our lives out of story And when we decide those stories are unspeakable, we build prisons out of our secrets. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that.
0: Well, you know, I, I learned at a very, very young age that some of my stories were unspeakable. And the reason I, the way I learned that was by speaking them and having really horrific consequences for having done so. And so, you know, I, for instance, I was being sexually abused by my grandfather, my father's father. I told the truth about it. And in one fell swoop, I lost half my family. Wow. And so that story, even though I had told it, and even though my mother believed me and I had a place where I could have talked about it, that secret went back underground because it was not safe. It was oh. not safe to tell that story. Um, and so, because I was a little girl trying to make sense of a situation that was overwhelming and terrifying and sad and I was grieving all of these losses, I did the math that if my grandfather, you know who who was the one who told me to keep that secret, um, if he was right about the consequences of having told that story and he was in some ways, then he was right about everything. Right. Because because my parents essentially and unwittingly made him a truth teller. He told me people would be upset and angry and wouldn't believe me. And all of those things came true in some form or fashion. And so I did the math that any story that I had that sort of shame feeling about was not a safe story to tell. And so I built a lot of story around the facts of my abuse. And because I wasn't talking about it, none of them were open to challenge. And so those secrets kept me so sick for so long about, you know, what I believed about my worth, where my value lay, um, whether I was worth defending, you know, all of those stories, that even the fact that, you know, I really, really, truly felt forsaken by God in that. I mean, I believed that. I had prayed for my abuse to stop, and it didn't. I had prayed for my father to believe me, and he didn't. And because I was a little girl and didn't have sort of the wisdom or the life experience to figure it out on my own, and I wasn't talking about it to anyone who did, I lived as though I was forsaken by God. And you move through the world very differently when you believe that.
1: Yes. Wow. So Laura, how old were you? I mean, that's pretty remarkable as that, that, that you were courageous enough to tell your story to your mom, at least. How old were you when you did that?
0: I believe I was, I was eight, almost nine. Wow. Yeah. And And it was, and it was simply because the, the notion of not telling had become more frightening than the notion of telling the last incident of my abuse was the first time that it had turned violent Uh, my grandfather raped me i was very very frightened to go back to that house and going back to that house was imminent and so that is the sole reason i told was because that was more terrifying to me than telling finally
1: yeah that's that scene um in the laundry room with the cat dish Um, that was very, that was hard to read. And yet, uh, I, I am so grateful that you wrote it that way. Um, the way that it actually happened, because I think that's going to give people some freedom to say what actually happened mm-hmm. with them.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was not going to write that chapter. Yeah. Um, I was determined actually, and had, had proclaimed several times publicly and on my blog that, that I would not write that chapter, um, because it was no one's business because it was this, because it was that, because no one needs to know that. Um, but it be, it wouldn't leave me alone. You know, when you, there's something that you're supposed to be talking about or supposed to be writing about and you're determined not to do it. It's, it's pretty, those stories are very insistent and so it finally occurred to me that the only reason i wasn't telling that story was that i still had some shame around it and i couldn't be writing a book about turning our secrets into stories and the power of reclaiming those stories if i wasn't telling that story yeah and and the reality is that that's what happened yep it's just what happened and, um, you know, I, I, tried to be, um, you know, I didn't want it to be salacious or I didn't want it to be graphic or, but I also wanted to convey the horror of what that experience is. Um, because no one is, no one benefits by, um, cleaning it up.
1: Right. Well, and you, Uh, in another place in your book, you write, if you do not accept your past, it will never be over. Mm -hmm. That, that the fact of the matter is that is what happened. And facts Mm -hmm. you write are Mm non-negotiable. So how did you get to the point where you, you like, I, I just heard you, you know, sort of come to the realization, but was there a moment when you realized, okay, I am going to write this. And was it friends that helped you through that? Was it family that helped you through that? Um, cause that's, that's a big step uh, to be public okay. with that. So how right. did you get over that or get through that?
0: Well, I, I wake up to a story in my inbox almost every single day. Okay. Um, it's almost always a story about sexual abuse. Not always. Sometimes it's a story about addiction or about something else, but, um, you know, Overwhelmingly, I would say their stories about sexual abuse and I think part of it is part of the gift of This process for me has been I have taken in so many people's stories Over the past three years that the notion that my experience is somehow unique is gone. Yeah. Yeah Um, and I Think that I have all of the mostly women, sometimes men, sharing these stories with me that they are sure are unspeakable. Right. They're too horrible to talk about. And, And what I see, you know, my cousin and I co founded a nonprofit called Say It Survivor, and we do workshops for survivors of sexual abuse. And there's always a moment in every single workshop. Where some woman is telling the part of her story that she has attached the most shame to. and it's it's always, you know, a laundry room floor story. Yeah. you know, it's always something like that. And she's it, it, and it's an act of utter bravery to do that in a room full of people that you don't know. And what happens every single time, without exception, is when she gets to that part of her story someone else in the room starts nodding yeah. and so for me you know understanding that that what happens to me on that linoleum floor is not unique to me and that by me saying that someone reading that somewhere is nodding and feeling less alone well that's the whole ball game. wow I mean, this whole, this, you know, it's interesting. I was talking with someone last night about the whole Me Too phenomena. Yep. And I mean, really, the last three years of my life have been Me Too. I mean, yeah. we talk, we talk about Me Too all the time before I knew Me Too was a thing. Right, right. Um, and the reality is that the reason why that is, such a powerful thing for people is that it's a lament. Yes. And I remember reading something Jen Hatmaker wrote a couple of summers ago about something totally different, saying, I wish we knew how to lament better. I think we do know how to lament. I think we do. I think that we don't we don't create space for it for people to do anymore. Ah, uh, yes. I think that the whole thing with Me Too the reason why it resonates so deeply, the reason why it's so uncomfortable for people is that is that it is a lament. It is a grief, a deep grief. And so I think any time someone gives voice to one of those experiences that all of a sudden you're not alone in it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's the whole ballgame.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the grief is individual, but it's also systemic, right? I mean, like, um, because the, the news cycle goes in and out so quickly, I think maybe some people thought, well, me too, is a blip on the screen and we're going to, I mean, I think everybody knew that it wasn't, but, but because of the way the news cycle goes, maybe people thought, okay, this is the story for a few days. Mm -hmm. And then we realize Oh my goodness um, this is patriarchy this is systemic mm-hmm. this is um, I mean this is s- such a huge endemic problem and which mm-hmm. is what I love I mean about your book and about your nonprofit you're helping to create space for people to say it to share their secrets it's so powerful
0: well and I had people that did that for me yeah. you know I had I had writers particularly with regard to my alcoholism like I had the Anne Lamott's and the Glennon Doyle's um, who, and, and the Matt Bases, yeah. Um who, who talked openly about their addiction and about recovery and it made it something that um, it allowed for the possibility of it. And Oprah, you know, Oprah was a huge one for me because I remember being in college and hearing her talk about her abuse. And, and having that be sort of, there's like, there are those moments in your life, there's a before and there's an after. Mm. And that was one of those moments where it had quite simply never occurred to me that you could live without shame about it. Wow. It had never occurred to me. And so, and it's not, it's not like then I was like, okay, well now I don't have shame anymore. Thanks, Oprah. Um, (laughs) it, it was it was literally decades after that but but it created that space in the world yeah where where before there had not been that space for me right and so i think that you know for me it's it's the first um the first sort of quote in the book or not the first one of the the last quote i think is the poem by hafiz about dropping keys yep and it's one of my favorite poems of all time. And I think that's so true where I can drop keys because keys were dropped for me. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. And so, you know, in recovery, we talk about giving away what we were so freely given. Same. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Same. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and even the cover of your book is is uh, a picture of, of that poem, really, of, of uh, the bird flying out of the cage. It's so good. Um, Laura, so what happens to someone that has been abused and they they keep the secret hidden? What Mm -hmm. happens to them?
0: Well, their story tells itself If you don't tell that story that story will tell itself it will find a way So all the years when I wasn't telling my story, but I was starving myself That was my story being told when I was in college and I was promiscuous because I didn't believe my no was enforceable, and I thought that that's where my value lay, um, that was my storytelling itself. Yeah. You know, our stories are insistent. I use the analogy in the book of trying to hold a basketball underwater. You can do it for a while, but eventually that thing is gonna come rocketing to the surface. Yes. Um, and so I think that our stories you know, I say it all the time. Um, we say it, survivor. You either own your story or it owns you. So when I wasn't telling my story, my story was in charge of my life. That one story was in charge of my life, and so it informed who I married. It informed how I took care of myself. It informed how it informed every relationship in my life. It informed the way I parented. Um, it was an enormously powerful story because i kept it hidden away.
1: Yeah. And isn't that the insidious thing? It's like we think we're managing it somehow, but we're not. I mean, it's 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 coming out and it's it's becoming bigger and more menacing and it's it it doesn't stay down. It it does come up. I love that our stories are insistent. That's well, so true. And,
0: and here's the thing, you know, you <laughs> A lot of the things that we do, you know, I always say we, we sign up for every manageable pain in order to not feel the pain. Right. Oh so whatever, my that, gosh. whatever that thing is that you don't want to look at, you don't want to feel that pain. So you sign up for all these little voluntary pains. Um, and they work. The thing is it works yep. for a while, right? It oh works yeah. for you. so my life felt out of control. What can I control? Well, as it turns out I cannot eat like a champ. So I, that gave me some measure of control and helped me function for a while. Uh, you know, drinking took away the pain. It was like magic. That worked for a while. You know, a lot of the coping mechanisms that we use, those little manageable pains, the thing about them is they work for a while and then they too become unmanageable and they too become secrets and so then you've just got you know multiple basketballs you're trying to hold underwater which is you know not a recipe for success but but the reason people turn to those things is that they work
1: yeah
0: right up until they don't
1: right so Could you tell uh, one of the stories that I thought was so evocative is when you move into your dream home, I think it's in Seattle and you get these two, you know, your two beautiful kids and your marriage, and then you, and then you find out something about your marriage that changes everything and you start to not eat and you start to drink too much. And people's reactions to you as you're losing the weight It's Mm -hmm. just, I mean, can you tell that story a little bit? Because I think that is so important, especially for women to hear. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, um, shortly after I turned 40, I, um, came into possession of some information that, uh, showed me that my life was, I was not leading the life I thought I was leading. Yeah. And so, um, and because I am a secret keeper um by nature i told no one so we had just moved into a 5000 square foot gorgeous like literally the home of my dreams and my life looked fantastic it my life looked incredible i had two gorgeous kids and a gorgeous dog and and a marriage that i would have said was really good and i lived in this beautiful home and a gorgeous neighborhood with lots of people I would have said were good friends. And, um, this terrible, ugly thing had been introduced and I immediately, you know, my reaction was shame. Yeah. And so I did what I did with all of my shame stories, which was to not tell anyone. Right. So that meant not telling my sisters Um, who, who I, you know, I talked to my, my younger sister at that time lived in Seattle and I saw her nearly every day. I talked to my older sister nearly every day and I did not tell them and I did not tell my best friend. Um, because my concern at that time was if I tell them this, they will never forgive him and I want things to work. And so they can't know.
1: Um,
0: and so for about eight months i didn't say anything to anyone i just didn't um so basically the 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 first night i found out i went downstairs to my beautiful dream kitchen and my fancy wine fridge and took a bottle of wine out of the fridge and took it upstairs and drank the whole thing and went back down for a second bottle brought that up and it was like i had given myself permission i am i did not become an alcoholic because of what happened in my marriage i responded to what happened in my marriage by drinking because i'm an alcoholic yeah and so i think that's an important distinction to make um my alcoholism isn't anyone's fault Um, it's just it just is. Yeah. And, and I had been very, very careful about my drinking for a very long time, because I have never not known it was a problem. Yeah. And so the way and and I, my other sort of mechanism historically for when things feel out of control, and my life felt very much out of control is to not eat. And so I began this pattern of not eating drinking myself to sleep every night i i joke and it's actually not a joke but that the overwhelming majority of my calories during that year really were wine yeah um and the occasional like rolled up piece of turkey when i couldn't stand upright um and so i the, you know i was losing weight rapidly and i got so much positive feedback.
1: Yeah, see that's what i'm saying. It's like, dang.
0: So much positive feedback. I every single day heard how great i looked and i did not look great. Yeah. Um i had two people who said anything to me. My best friends and another friend. Um both of whom were terribly worried about me and um were, you know, not not sort of confrontational, but would ask me if I was eating. And I would lie and say I was eating. Um, but it was very, very interesting to me how I knew on a, on a real visceral, fundamental level that I was dying. Yeah. And I have never gotten so much positive feedback about my appearance as I did during that time. And for all from women.
1: Ugh oh. So it was sort of like reinforcing the mm-hmm. secret keeping. Keep mm-hmm. your secret. Okay. You're losing weight. People are noticing it. You're getting all this affirmation, mm-hmm. but inside, internally, your soul is saying something completely different. Like you're dying.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would get the kids off to school and and um, and ch- literally be on the floor, just undone with grief and. Not, not, I wouldn't say actively wanting to die, but always a little disappointed when I woke up in the morning.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: You know, like, oh God, again, I have to do it again. Okay. Yeah. Put on more makeup, buy smaller jeans. Yeah. You know, but we decide about each other based on these ridiculous metrics. Like, you know, oh, well, I, I, when I finally started telling the truth about what was going on, I the thing that shocked me the most was how many people told me that they were under the impression I had a perfect marriage.
1: Mm.
0: Now I was surprised about my marriage,
1: right, right,
0: but not more surprised than I was to hear that other people had perceived it as perfect. And I, and I really sort of had to like do a deep dive on like, I wonder why that was. And I think part of it is that we do decide about each other based on ridiculous things like, okay, we're a good looking couple and we have a, nice house and he's successful and so therefore it's a perfect marriage but also i have to i have to own the fact that because i was fundamentally dishonest about my life like i never said when things were hard yeah i never said you know i don't feel seen or i never said you know i i never um I, I never really was honest about the, I only talked about the positive things. And, you know, part of that is sort of like, I grew up in a, like, you don't complain about stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, but part of it is just secret keeping, you know, like things will be okay if everyone thinks everything's okay. Gosh. And that's just not true.
1: Yeah. And if we keep pretending. Mm -hmm. So, um, so here's a big question, Laura, because I'm imagining people who are listening, maybe who are realizing holy mama, and maybe that they've had to pause this podcast three times. (laughs) And now they're on their fourth time listening three months later, but they've realized, I have secrets. I know, I know, I can't keep living with them hidden. But I don't know what to do now. I don't know how to make the step of who to tell. What would you tell someone that is thinking that?
0: Yeah, well, I think that, first of all, there are a million ways to tell your story. And so the advice that I am never giving is tell your story publicly. Right. Not that that can, you know, I'm a testament to the fact that that can be an amazing thing when you do that. However, it is not the right answer for everyone. And it's not the right answer for you if you've not done your work already. Right. Um, and I, I learned that the hard way. Right. So I had a post that I wrote about, um, an experience I had with my cousin where we reported our grandfather for abusing us. Um, that happened in January of 2015. I was not yet sober. Yeah. And so, um, and that post went viral and I was not equipped to deal with the reaction. Yeah. Having said that, I wouldn't change it. Um, but I also wouldn't recommend it.
1: (laughs) Right. It is a beautiful um, post. Is that he wrote it down? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a str- yeah. it's a beautiful post. Thank you. But I know um, what you mean. Um, yeah. Yeah. So keep going. I mean, why?
0: Well, I, I think it's a really interesting um, commentary on our society that we conflate telling your story with going on Oprah. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's never what I'm recommending. I think that there are a million ways to tell your story. I think that... Um, Writing it is certainly a really helpful tool I think that telling it to another human being Who can reflect empathy back to you is even more helpful Um Brene brown says shame is the antidote. I mean empathy is the antidote to shame and I believe that's true. Yeah, um I think that there, there are a million different ways that it can look like, and maybe that means finding a therapist and, and doing your work there. Maybe that means getting sober and telling parts of your story in a you know circle of busted up folding chairs. Maybe, there, there are a million different ways. The point is that when you tell your story, particularly to another human being, your story so, what we're always saying in workshops is we, we try to have people untangle the narrative of what, what are the facts of their abuse and what's the story.
1: Oh.
0: Because those are two different things. And there is nothing to be done about the facts. Right. They're immutable, it, it, it already happened, they're not negotiable. That's what happened but what we find overwhelmingly is that the lasting trauma is in the story and, and the- do you,
1: do you mean by that like like the story is i deserved it i'm a liar mm-hmm. I, that that kind of thing
0: my value lays in my sexuality. I brought it on me. My mother didn't love me enough to defend me. My father didn't believe. You know, yep. all of all of the the story that because here's the thing: human beings since the beginning of time have used story to make sense of the world. Right. That is what we do. And children, when they get s- dealt this set of facts that they don't understand, they do what we have done since we were in caves, which is they knit a simple story out of them. Hmm. And sometimes that simple story is more damaging than the facts of our abuse. Yeah. Right. So if my story is that, like, my father didn't believe me, so I'm a liar. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do liars do? They lie. And so I became a liar and lived out of that story. And it didn't matter that it wasn't true. It became true. Yeah. You know or my value lays in my sexuality. Okay, then I lead with my sexuality. Well, what does your path through the world look like if that's true, right? man. You know, and so when you suss out, okay, so these are facts and those are to be grieved and mourned and you can, you know, heal in different ways with that, but there's nothing to be done about them. They are what they are. Yeah, your story the story that you either got sold by the people who were involved, because the thing about sexual abuse is um, <laughs> Mary and I do a lot of talks with parent groups and the conversation parents always want to have is about stranger danger
1: because
0: mm. that's a comfortable conversation.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, the fact is that it will protect your child from about seven percent of sexual abuse because 93 percent is at the hands of someone who's already in your child's life. And so the reason why sexual abuse gets so complicated is that everybody knows what should happen to the creep in the trench coat in the park because we don't have any other contexts for him. Mm. But when it's Uncle Bob and he's so much fun and what will we do about Christmas and this is going to screw up Thanksgiving and, you know, whatever, or he's the breadwinner or he, you know, whatever. When there's some other context for the abuser things get muddy. Ugh. And so what we find is that we have these conversations around like, well, what's the story you told yourself about what happened to you? Because that can be rewritten right yes. now. Yes. You worked on that can change. That is not static. But if your story stays untold, it's static. It's not open to challenge. You know, there were things about my story when we reported to Officer Paul that just me saying them out loud because I had never said them out loud, I didn't even believe myself when I said it. Wow. You know, or I would say something like I had just enormous guilt and shame about the fact that I was certain that my grandfather had gone on to abuse other kids, which we found out he did. Mm. Um, And I felt responsible for that. Like, I believed I was responsible for that. And I said something to that effect when we were reporting to officer Paul, and the look on his face stopped me short. And he looked at me and he said, you were a little girl. And it had never occurred to me that I was a little
1: girl. Wow.
0: Because when you're little, you don't think you're little you know, and I, and I don't remember feeling like a little girl ever. And so it, it took sort of that, um, having my story, my story reflected back to me that way for me to understand it differently. Like I left that police station understanding my story differently for having told it.
1: Yeah. That is amazing. I mean, That you would say, I told parts of my story and I didn't believe it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And you, and you needed someone to reflect back to you reality. Like you were a little girl, you, you, you couldn't, you weren't responsible. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the power in telling the secret because the story gets so, I'm just reflecting back to you what you're saying, but the story gets so muddied with, with the facts and you know, the story feels like the facts.
0: Right. And it's a story that you wrote. So you're not the one to challenge it because you already (sighs) believe it. And, and for what, what we have found, because that, that exact experience of, of having the process of saying it out loud, change it happens in every workshop where some some of these shame stories that we build around our trauma, they can't survive being spoken.
1: Right. Yeah, like when they get out into the light, it's it's yeah. like no, 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 no. Um, exactly. Something better needs to be written.
0: Mhm. Oh, that's
1: so good. And um, it's
0: a story written by you know, my story was a story written by a child. Right. Who did understand the world, who didn't have any wisdom or perspective, or um, and so it took saying it aloud as a 44-year-old woman to hear it differently, because I had just accepted it as fact and I lived accordingly, and so I hadn't told those parts of my story Hmm. ever to anyone, and so they were never open to challenge.
1: Yeah, man. So, um, gosh, there's so much here that I want to get into. And yet I'm looking at the time. Um, there's a couple other questions I really want to ask. Yeah. So Laura, let's assume that someone does the painful work of maybe going to a workshop, um, mm-hmm. uh, from say it survivor, which by the way, do you, do you guys travel and do that all over the place or yeah. how?
0: We are going to. We've mostly been doing them in sort of the um, Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. But our plan is over the next year or two to take it around the country as we are able to fundraise more. We're trying – the The balance is to to keep it affordable for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um, and so that necessitates a lot of fundraising. So we're trying to do that in advance so that we can keep it within reach for everybody.
1: Okay. So I'm going to put on the show notes – I will put the – Website for say it survivor. And am I hearing that you're accepting donations? Like people could donate online if they are behind this project.
0: Yes. Yep. And we, um, we also have a really nice online Facebook community, um, which is a great place to go and sort of connect with other survivors and have it be a, a place where you can kind of just be seen, you know,
1: that's incredible. Okay, so I'll put that on the show notes as well. The Facebook page for Sate Survivor as well as the website for Sate Survivor. You could uh, glance around there and you can donate uh, folks if you would like to get behind Laura's work. Uh, but before we get to that, I, or before you know uh, anyone does that, I want to talk about vulnerability hangover <laughs> because when you share your story, uh for the first time and then there is that moment where you go holy shit i i i said it i I, now it's not a secret anymore can you talk about and you write about this but can you talk about it
0: well i I didn't have a vulnerability hangover when i first started writing about it i had actual hangovers when i first yeah um i was Drinking all the time. So I you know, I didn't so much feel the vulnerability the headaches were an issue, but yeah um, I Don't have them so much Anymore, although I will say that when the book first went out into the world that one chapter um I had that moment of like People are gonna read that. Yeah Um, and and people who don't already love me, right? You know, um, I have been, I probably should not say this out loud. I've been very lucky for the most part in the way people have responded to my story. I have definitely had some seriously, you know, creepy emails and threatening emails and things like that. Um, but by and large, the response has been really lovely.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but it's the internet,
1: (laughs) right? It's and the so, wild world, HuffPost, yeah, and yeah,
0: yeah. And so, um, you know, I think the thing for me that has been really helpful in that, first of all, is I have a lot of friends who are writers who went before me and told me, um, under no circumstances, do you read comments on Huffington Post. Okay, so <laughs> Sorry, I've never read. Yes, I've
1: can, never can I just? I have written on HuffPost a few times and, and on Post that have gone viral and I I stopped like I I could yeah. not believe the vitriol yeah. and just unbelievable rage <laughs> it's just yeah. so yes so good yes. advice
0: uh, so the only the only uh, negative comments I've seen from Huffington Post are ones that people have very helpfully sent to me which <laughs> thank <I> you deeply, <laughs> deeply appreciate. Um, So I, I have really good boundaries when it comes to that. But I think the other thing that was really, really, really helpful to me early on is, um, when he wrote it down, went viral, I had a comment from someone eviscerating me for a part of my story that was not part of my story.
1: Mm.
0: And she was quoting to me something that I did not say. Mm and she, and and it was such a um, a moment of oh this doesn't have anything yeah. to do with me N- literally nothing yep with me and and what it made me think of is i taught art for years and what i always said to my students is you and i never stand in front of the same painting mhm because i bring Everything I have learned and lived and experienced and like and dislike to it and you do the same And so we experience it completely differently and so it's the same with people's stories And so when I what I now know is when someone has a really sort of Strong reaction to my story. It's almost never my story right and so that that makes it feel much less personal yep and it it makes it so that i am not invested in what people think of my work anymore yeah at all um what i think it's glennon that says art is a big girl (laughs) yeah you don't need to defend it and that that was hugely helpful to me um because when i first started writing publicly i was very invested in how people perceived my story, what they thought of me, or whatever. Um, and I don't feel that way at all anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think vulnerability is my superpower. So I don't get too freaked out about it because every time I lead with vulnerability, it's a good thing.
1: Yep. Um is it fair to say, Laura, though and and you you really did say it, I just want to underline it for those folks who maybe it's not yet a superpower is it fair to say that's a learned response
0: Mhm. Yeah, I think that um, especially for lots of people who I I would have said particularly before I got sober, I would have said that vulnerability was a character defect. Yeah. Um it didn't feel safe to me. Yep. Um, and, and being vulnerable, you know, meaning that someone else had some sort of, you know, I, the way I understood vulnerability was that people could prey on you. Right. Um, and so as a survivor of sexual violence, um, that felt terrifying to me. And so I walked through the world wearing armor. Um, and, and in doing so stayed sick stayed lonely stayed unseen um and and really was giving people an an enormous amount of power over me because yeah. i looked that way um but you can't see that when you're in it that's that's a that is a truth you come to on the other side of the work um i think vulnerability i think vulnerability begets vulnerability so i think if you are in a space where you don't feel ready to tell your story, read people who are.
1: Yes, and would you mind just just give us three, four, five people that you would recommend in terms of folks that tell their story well? Matt Bayes. Matt Bayes definitely.
0: Um, Glennon Doyle. Yep. Anne Lamott. Um, who else? It's really oh, uh, Jonathan Martin
1: yeah yeah I like
0: him. how it's my favorite book of the last six months out yeah. of yep back. yep it knocked me out yep um and actually you know even she she's very funny well almost all the writers that I really respond to are funny but um Jen hatmaker I think is really really great at um telling the truth about herself um i I like her enormously.
1: Yeah, actually I'm a big fan of Jen and I think sometimes she's so funny that people don't realize how much um, yeah. flack that she gets um, well, she,
0: you know I, especially
1: I am, lately in the yeah, uh, I
0: am busy about her well yeah. i'm I'm the mom of two kids neither of whom is straight yeah. so anyone who is who is a voice that people listen to in a faith community who is speaking love at my children
1: mm-hmm. I'm all yours Come on now preach yep. Oh that's beautiful. Okay well, Laura, we're out of time sadly. Hey. I know. Um and but this oh my goodness. I I just I love this conversation. Mm-hmm. I I know it's going to be so helpful. Probably a little frightening for <laughs> for some but mm-hmm. uh, but an an invitation to freedom. You are one of those people who leaves keys all over i could just tell i mean it's just such a um thank you so much um so uh laura your book she wrote it down how a secret keeper became a storyteller it's available anywhere where you buy books i will put a link on it on the show notes so you can just click there and go ahead and get it um is it available via audiobook if people like to do that
0: no not yet
1: not yet okay Mm -hmm. um uh, anything, any, any last words you want to share? Anything I didn't ask you that you were hoping I would ask you?
0: Oh gosh, no. I mean, I, I love the conversation, but I think, I think that the thing I want to leave people with is that, you know, and I touched on it earlier, there are a million ways to tell your story and your way doesn't have to look like anybody else's way, but I guarantee you therein lies freedom. Yeah. Write it down, lock it up, take it to the bank.
1: Yep. Yep, 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 yep. I agree. Those are beautiful words. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you. Um I count you a new friend, which I'm grateful for. And um I hope our paths cross in real life at some
0: point. Yeah, I hope point. so too.
1: And uh so I I close the podcast off. So the podcast is called This Good Word, and mm-hmm. uh the little tag or the little byline is um, reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. Um, uh, so the gritty human real stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And then,
1: um, I, every time I remember anyway, I end with this little mantra that we came up with, and that is we are dust and breath, meaning, you know, we're, we're the breath of God and the dust of ordinariness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are human and holy. Mm-hmm. We are limited and limitless and we are in it together. And so that's sort of the, the fuel of this, of this community. I love if it, that. if it can be said that it's community, which I think it can. So
0: oh, I think it can.
1: Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much. Um, Thank I loved
0: you so much, Steve. You know. this was a delight.
1: Okay. Peace, my friend.
0: You too.